This is Jessica Fritz Aguirre. Welcome to Sticky Beak Season 2, Episode 11. This is Good and Faithful Servant, the second chapter of a trilogy exploring the life and death of Sharon Vincent and insight into how each of her choices shaped this case forever. Make sure you check out the first of the Sharon chapters, Episode 10, entitled All the Rockies. The third and final episode of this trilogy, rounding out Season 2, is called From Hollyville to Whirlwind. It will be available in one week, or you can get it right now by pledging $5 a month to become a Sticky Beak patron on www.patreon.com backslash stickybeak. Joe and I have been busy there answering listener questions, and Joe has even posted a listener favorite, one of his infamous Joe rants by popular demand. Please continue to share and review the show which gets us the exposure Doreen so desperately needs. And don't forget to join the Sticky Beaks Facebook group. And, as always, you can email me at justicefordory at gmail.com. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, JPEX Financial, in Glastonbury, Connecticut. Do you have a 401k and some savings for future retirement, but don't even know if it's enough to live off of? How much is enough? How often are you thinking about it? The team at JPEX Financial Group can help set your mind at ease. We specialize in creating strategies in the planning and managing of your financial, educational, and investment needs. We help clients pursue their investment goals with sound financial strategies. You deserve a personal, tailored plan. Lasting, meaningful, and open relationships are the foundation of our practice. You've worked hard for your money and should feel confident in your investment choices as you make decisions for your financial future. Your goals are our goals. We are dedicated to your needs and hopes for your future. Visit our website and give us a call at 860-430-5397. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors, Inc. JPEX Financial Group, LLC is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. JPEX Financial Group is located at 78 Eastern Boulevard, Glastonbury, Connecticut. Please visit their website at www.raymondjames.com backslash JPEX Financial. That's J-P-E-X Financial. Now on to the show. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children. Walk On June 28th and 29th, 1988, about two weeks after Doreen disappeared, Sharon decided it was time to speak to the media. Interviewing back-to-back with Ralph Tomaselli of the Meriden Wallingford Record Journal and Joanna Hernandez Otto for the Bridgeport Telegram, Sharon emphasized the little girl's unhappiness with her new home, including her constant complaints that it was, quote, too country. She liked having people live nearby, like her friend, Sharon said and she enjoyed the activity of the city. Here in Wallingford, she felt like she was in the middle of nowhere. She had no friends here, and she was just bored. These days, it's funny to realize that Doreen might have had a lot more in common with Sharon than she thought. Here's a member of Sharon's family. No, I I remember thinking, why all the way in Wallingford? I remember thinking that, but 
That is that is the million dollar question is it, because I I think there's reasons that are all nefarious as to why he would move out to Wallingford, which is not anywhere near any of the work or the people he was working for or with yeah. were, or not anywhere near Bridgeport where his base was. So I thought he was either running from something or he yep. went to Wallingford yeah. because <coughs> there were people there that were interested in the things he was interested in. Right. Oh, she was social? I didn't know that about her. No, she liked to, like, go to church and be with people around, and she liked to be with the family and have the kids play together, and, you know, like a typical mother. And this source wasn't the only person suspicious of the move. According to Sharon's Aunt Vera, Vera's sister Tony was always convinced that something sinister had brought their niece and her husband Mark to the farm. Sharon was quick to add that Doreen had run away before, for a few hours to her mother's, in what she characterized as a custody dispute. She's been unhappy, Sharon repeated. She's pulled emotionally between her mother and father's lifestyles. Strangely, despite Doreen's apparent misery, Sharon hinted that she had not originally bought the runaway story, telling Tomaselli the disappearance was, quote, a shock, but not a surprise. Looking back on it now, Sharon said, I realized she was anxious to leave. I didn't think so then, but now I do. According to the accounts, Sharon worried about her stepdaughter, whom she called a typical 12-year-old girl who was friendly and intelligent, but also naive with an unearned sense of independence. I think she thought she could take care of herself, Sharon said, but I knew she couldn't. What worries me is, I don't think she planned this. I think she did it impulsively. A girl like Doreen, Sharon said, didn't know what kind of dangers lurked on the street. We are trying to avoid thinking that someone may have taken her or that she is somewhere against her will. But it is hard not to, Sharon said. Both Sharon and Mark stressed that they weren't mad at Doreen. I just want my daughter back, said Mark. I want to tell her, Sharon said, not to be afraid. We want to hear from her and we want her to come home. Please let her know we're waiting to hear from her. Don't be afraid to call us. Neither Tomaselli nor Hernandez Otto interviewed Doreen's mother, Donna. It was over a year later, on July 8, 1989, that the Wallingford Police Department would finally interview Sharon Vincent. I wish to give this statement to the police now, Sharon began, to assist them in any way I can to locate my husband Mark's missing daughter, Doreen. This story will continue next, after a brief word from our sponsor. As we are in another year living through a worldwide pandemic, it's important to protect yourself and your loved ones. You've worked hard for the things you have and for the people you share them with. But what if something tragic happened to you? While it's dark and difficult to think about the prospect you won't be around in the future, it will be a reality one day. If you have young children, who will be your children's guardian? If you've been divorced and remarried, Will your children from your prior marriage be taken care of? Or if you want to donate to a certain charity after you pass, will those wishes be fulfilled? What will happen to your assets and your estate? If you already have a will or trust, you enjoy that peace of mind. If you don't have a will or trust, contact attorney Nia Serdosky at NCS Law, 860-966-9968. 
Attorney Serdosky is an estate planning attorney in Connecticut who can explain the differences of benefits of wills and trusts and give you the peace of mind that your affairs are in order and that your loved ones and your estate are provided for and safe. NCS Law, practicing peace of mind. 860-966-9968. Mia at ncsestateprobatelaw.com. The story Sharon gave the cops is, by now, familiar. On June 15, 1988, she said, Mark got home from work around 4.30 or 5 p.m. to find her with dinner ready. The little family, she said, was still sitting around eating when she left for church, her Wednesday night custom, between 6 and 6.15. When she got back at 11.30 that night, Sharon told the police, Mark was in the kitchen, getting coffee and very angry that his wife had been out for so long. Mark told Sharon Doreen had run away, that she was probably in Waterbury with Donna, and that he was headed out to look for her in his Chevy truck. Mark would later give the cops his own version of the day Doreen disappeared, and something I've said countless times bears repeating here. Sharon and Mark's alibis are mutually exclusive. Sharon says she disappeared on a Wednesday evening after Mark came home from work and she left for church. But according to Mark himself, Doreen vanished after he paddled her in her room in the afternoon, beating her so loudly that Sharon had to take the little kids out in the yard. He pinned that date as on or around June 15, 1988. If we're trying to say this all happened on the same day, which I think Mark and Sharon were, there was no time for Mark to beat Doreen on that Wednesday because he just wasn't home. According to Mark's boss, Frank Iamel of Frank's Paint in New Haven, contractors like Mark worked weekdays but had the weekends off because that's when Frank's guys would do interior jobs, like painting office space. Mark didn't do that kind of work. Jimmy Piscotti, the Vincent's neighbor, heard a giant commotion at the house while he was doing his yard work, something he did only on weekends. For his article in 2001, Jason Berry used the phrase, in the weeks prior to Doreen's disappearance, to detail when Piscotti had heard the yelling. But there were no weeks prior. At most, Doreen was only at that house for 10 days, including just one weekend. There could have been two fights between Doreen and her father, one on the weekend of June 11th and 12th, and another on June 15th, but that's not the way these two tell it. Also, this wasn't the first time Sharon's account didn't align with Mark's, with Sharon undercutting her husband's claim about Doreen leaving through the deadbolted door. These days, the Wallingford cops either don't understand this discrepancy or don't care. When I brought it up to now Captain Colavolpe this past summer, he asked, without any irony, why would Mark and Sharon have reason to lie about the date? She provided Donna with the directions to the house, but then she also, we think, provided an alibi for Mark because... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What did I always say? I mean, she had to be scared to death of that guy. She mm -hmm. had to hedge her bets. And Sharon's obfuscations would only grow. She would tell the police that she went to sleep when Mark left that night, but awoke when he came home around the witching hour at about 3 a.m. on June 16th. She claimed he didn't speak to her at all until the next morning and that she didn't ask him any questions. Here's Donna's daughter and Doreen's sister, Stephanie. 
What wife has her husband walk through the door at three o'clock in the morning? The driver's over here, say, right? Where have you sure. been? Did yeah. you find her? What the hell are you doing? To the bank. She knew. She knew. Yeah. You don't ask questions. You know, guys know that when they called OJ in Chicago to tell him Ron and Nicole were murdered, he didn't ask how. Yeah. Like I mean, you, that's what I'm saying. Like, you don't need to talk to him. You don't need to say. Anything. You don't need to say yeah, anything. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's so odd. If my husband walked through the door at three o'clock in the morning, no matter where the hell he told me he was going. I have a thousand and one questions. He told you that he went to look for his missing right. daughter. Right. I have a thousand questions. Exactly. I didn't this go to sleep because still. I've been sitting by the window too, waiting for you to come too. home. Right. According to Sharon's July 89 statement, Mark left the next morning to look for Doreen at Donna's house. But he also told her that if Donna called, not to tell her Doreen was missing. What the statement doesn't mention is that Mark got his wife up before 7 a.m. on June 16th less than four hours after he had gotten home, and told her to take Paul and Sarah out of the house in case something bad happened. Ever the dutiful wife, Sharon obliged, and when she came home later that afternoon, she went into Doreen's room. After cataloging the closet for missing items and, in her words, thinking about it for several days, Sharon mentally filed away what she thought Doreen had left with. Shorts, a purple top, her purple Reebok sneakers, her denim pocketbook with her telephone and address book, makeup, hairspray, and about $70 she had been paid for housework. But here's the thing. The denim jacket that Mark had told police his daughter was wearing when she vanished, that would be featured on missing posters and in media reports on Doreen for decades. Sharon found that in the little girl's closet the very next day. But she never said a word. That day, June 16th, Donna called the house on Whirlwind Hill, having no idea that anything was awry. These days, Donna recalls knowing about the family's recent move from Bridgeport to Wallingford, but the contemporaneous police records I have indicate differently that Donna learned about it from the operator, who gave her the new number. This means that Mark and Sharon had taken the girl almost 40 minutes north in secret, and this wasn't something new. The two had been presenting themselves as Doreen's only parents for a while now. Here's Kate, Doreen's seventh grade friend from Westwood's Academy. Did she ever talk about her stepmom at all? I rem it's funny, I remember her talking about something with it, because I, this, these are tough memories. That I'm, I'm not remembering the details, but my brain is kind of feeling like I didn't know she had a real mom. Because I th the stepmom I thought was her real mom or mm -hmm. something like that. It wasn't until after she went missing that I found out she had a, a real mom. Right. Like that kind of is how I'm remembering. But yeah. I haven't thought about that in years until you just asked me. So right. I don't know if that's accurate, but that's kind of what I recollect. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny when you read articles about this. She was, the mother was constant. And I think they had a very close relationship, right? The mother and the daughter, even though it was like fraud and she would move here and there. But... She's constantly referred to as the natural mother, sometimes like not even in her own name. Mm -hmm. It'll just says the natural mother said, and then, you know, it's very like, very 1980s reporting, right? Yeah. Um, and the stepmother sort of given like a, more of a, um, like a higher status, yeah. Kind of. Sharon's signature is all over Doreen's school forms, sometimes designated as mother, but other times simply as Doreen's mom. That's the case on Parkview Academy's corporal punishment policy, which allowed staff members to paddle Doreen as long as they prayed with her afterward and reminded her of their love. 
It's also true for her Parkview admission form, on which Mark and Sharon not only represented that they were Christians, but also claimed that Doreen herself had made a profession of faith in Christ. It also appears that it was Sharon's okay, and definitely not Donna's, that landed Doreen at the Simon Evans Center, which investigator Rick Novia jotted was a place where Doreen had been placed before, and she was difficult and would not conform. The center is a place where children are taken when mom and dad can't handle them. You'll recall that intake form posed questions to Doreen, then still a young child, like, have you ever been in a lesbian relationship? Or have you ever been involved in a relationship with a married man? There's not much available on Simon Evans, so if anyone knows anything, please get in touch. That place was founded by the Reverend Marvin T. McCarthy, also known as Big Mac, an ordained minister for the Assemblies of God Church, before becoming pastor of New Life Church in Trumbull, and later New Haven. Like Sharon was to Mark, Ethel McCarthy was her husband's helpmate. When Ethel passed away in 2016, someone left this tribute on her obituary. Pastor Mac and family, saddened to hear of your loss here on earth, but we all know she is resting in the arms of our sweet Jesus. Nevertheless, I am sure she will be missed. I always remember her sweet spirit and the wonderful work she did with the girls at the Simon Evans Center. Another wrote, Miss Ethel was a beautiful lady inside and out, and she has truly heard Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Sharon would later admit to police that that day, June 16th, she said nothing to Donna about Doreen running away, only telling her that her daughter was out. She did, however, give Donna directions to the new house, which Donna and her family talk about to this day. Without those directions, they tell me, Donna never would have been able to find her way. Donna tried to reach the Whirlwind House again and again on June 17th and 18th, but Mark had taken the phone off the wall. This was because, Mark and Sharon would later tell the cops, he didn't want Donna bothering them. When Donna finally showed up on Whirlwind Hill on the evening of Saturday, June 18th, Sharon had a front row seat. She watched quietly as Mark met his ex-wife in the yard to accuse her of having taken Doreen. Sharon recalled that Mark was, quote, hesitant to call the police, so a flustered Donna pushed past him into the house to make the call herself. Mark even forced Donna to call her mother Jane in Florida to prove Doreen was not with her. There's that call on the phone bill. Five minutes to Port St. Lucie at 6.56 p.m. Even though he'd been hired by and was working for Donna, Richard Novia suspected that too, musing in his report that Doreen might have called her mother, her Aunt Debbie, or Debbie's husband Mike to pick her up, and that one of them, or maybe a combination, was hiding her. But that's impossible, because there was no phone service from June 5th, the family's first day at the house, and June 15th, the day Mark and Sharon claimed Doreen vanished. In fact, only one call, lasting one minute, was placed that day by Sharon at 11.26 p.m. to ask her church friend Patricia Little for prayer. That was normal, Patricia told Novia, and me years later. Everyone called her for prayer. She couldn't recall whether Sharon had been in church on Wednesday the 15th or what Sharon had wanted her to pray about, though she was positive there had been no mention of a missing stepdaughter. Patricia barely remembered Doreen from church and never had a conversation with Sharon about her or her disappearance. Novia did call the women's church, Faith Christian in West Haven, 
but that entire page of his report bears nothing but the place's address and phone number, above a giant slash mark and a note reading, dead end. Sharon didn't get involved too much the night Donna showed up, she told police in July 89, because she had to keep Sarah and Paul out of the way and get them to bed. During the next several days, Sharon admitted, she did not see Mark much because he was out. He had been, she was quick to tell reporters, looking for Doreen. I have never been able to see the videotaped interviews of Sharon that I know the police have. But in her official statement, barely comprising a page and a half, Sharon never mentioned any fight between Mark and Doreen, not the paddling, not the screaming, not Sharon escaping with her little ones into the yard. There's no fight in Novia's report either. In fact, it appears Novia never interviewed Sharon at all. Doreen's Aunt Carol did tell me she'd seen a bullet hole in Doreen's window, the same one that was cracked. Did you say there was a, you look like a bullet hole in that window? I did too. You saw, the, you saw it too? There was a ladder up there when we first went to go pick her up. There was a ladder there, her belt scrub was off the bed. We looked up, there's the window, it looks like it had a bullet hole in it. And, and the window was cracked. Cracked. Yeah. From the bullet hole, probably, right? <clears throat> Maybe, I don't know. It didn't shatter or anything. It wasn't like a shatter like a bullet normally would do. Okay. It was just really, what an airy feeling when you got in that room. Not oh, one of the things the police should at least have is no, pictures no, of that. No, well, that's what, I think it, they didn't go to the house. They missed the concrete patio. They missed the denim jacket and the shoes and all the clothes. They missed the bullet hole in the window. Because what was really the ladder up by the for a while, Carol's decade-old memory of a bullet hole was all I had. Then I got my hands on Richard Novia's report, briefly detailing his talk with Mark and Sharon's landlords, Jim Farnham and Laura West. Novia did note the broken window in Doreen's room, writing bullet hole in his report. He also wrote had bullet hole measured, but he crossed that part out. Jim Cifarelli of the Wallingford PD once told me that glass was still on the floor in July 89 when police finally went to the house. And it wasn't until then, until Mark spilled the detail about the discipline he'd meted out to his daughter, that anyone knew about the fight. In fact, when I started this project back in January of 2019, I relayed this detail to Donna and Doreen's aunts, Debbie and Carol, only to learn that it was the first time they were hearing about it too from anyone. And these lies by omission did not sit well with Detective Hanley. We learned some kind of disturbance happened in the house, was covered up, and evidence destroyed, Hanley said. A second floor window was broken. We have a crime. We know we have a crime scene. The crime scene was cleaned up. The bedroom was cleaned up. Sharon cleaned the sheets. She said she did. She cleaned the place up. Speaking to me in 2019, Laura West recounted visiting Sharon at the house after Mark left, watching little Paul totter toward a pile of glass with a scary glint in his eye. She had to yell to Sharon, Laura told me, to keep Paul safe. As for the fight itself, there is one detail everyone always gets wrong. Mark never claimed he pushed Doreen into the window. He claims it was her who shattered it when she backed up. He claims she was the one who broke it when she backed away from him. It's a small detail, but it reminds me of Andrea Bauman, dead and buried in her adopted father's yard. Dennis Bauman would tell authorities that he had slapped Andrea and she had staggered backward, falling down the stairs headfirst and breaking her neck. An accident, Dennis insisted, 
not his fault. And Laura West wasn't the only one to pay Sharon a visit at the house. Did you ever get a chance to talk to Sharon about it at all? No, never. Never talked to her again after that. Really? We, I remember we went to the house once to visit. A very brief visit, and I can't remember why we went. But um, Doreen was not there at that time. Which house? So the new house where Doreen disappeared from in Wallingford, right? Yeah, from the farmhouse? Yeah. Well, you've got a one-up on me because I've never been in that house and they're not letting me anywhere near it, so. I'm trying to think. I almost think that we actually went in. It was, like, must have been the summertime and we were just outside and I don't think I actually went inside. Well, if it were the summertime, because they moved there in the summertime and then I think Sharon moved out in about November, so you would have been there right around when she disappeared. And Sharon hid other things. She told police she'd found several letters Doreen had written to her friends back in Bridgeport, sitting waiting to be mailed. The police were never able to account for those letters, and that's the only mention I have of them in the redacted file that I have. As for what was in Doreen's diary before Mark ceremoniously burned it in the driveway, well, that depends on who you ask. Mark claimed Doreen had written about boys she had crushes on and the babies she would have with movie stars. But he also told police it was full of complaints. About him and the move, yes, but especially about Sharon. I've also played a weird game of telephone on this one. Remember Heather Parker, the supposed runaway from Westwood's Academy who looked a lot like Doreen, who Novia would take on midnight rides? Novia told her that Doreen had written all about Heather in the diary, endlessly and almost obsessively rating Heather the only perfect 10 of all her classmates. Do you know how heartbreaking that was to hear, Heather asked me? But according to Captain Cola Volpe, there was no record at all of Heather being in the diary. So I'm not sure if Mark, who seemed very aware of the existence of Heather Parker, was the source of that lie, or if Novia himself made it up to get Heather into his car. Who knows? Maybe Heather's not being truthful with me. Maybe the cops aren't. Sharon's account of Doreen's diary to reporter Valerie Roth at Mark's 1991 gun trial was also hard to pin down. She first described the writings as, quote, typical teenage rebellion, telling Roth that Mark had been very strict with Doreen for her own welfare. But then Sharon's thoughts almost seemed to wander, and she mused, if you saw some of the things in the diary, he was mad at her very upset at the things that were in it. But Sharon insisted there was nothing in the book that incriminated Mark, and then she zipped her lip. But it turns out Sharon's public support for her husband hid festering doubts. According to Sharon's sister Liz, Sharon became convinced that Doreen was dead and disposed of. She asked Mark over and over and over that summer what had happened to Doreen. In response, Mark ignored her, pretending she hadn't said anything at all. Rumors flew in the Rockwell family. One of Sharon's aunts, Jim and Vera's sister Tony, was known to say that, quote, Sharon's family, I guess meaning Mark, had visited Whirlwind and driven what she called all-around outback. Tony is gone now, but Vera tells me her sister became convinced, with no real evidence to back it up, that Doreen had been buried on the grounds of 1316. 
Sharon and Liz would whisper among themselves about the 1986 case of Hella Crafts, a Connecticut flight attendant whose husband killed her and then inspired cult classic Fargo when he fed her body to a wood chipper. Sharon and Liz would also wonder about Lai. Sharon's gray tabby pumpkin had turned up dead once while she was at work. She came home looking for the cat, but Jim had already buried it after dousing it with lye. When Mark was finally questioned by the police in July 1989, he could not account for all those lost hours he spent in the days after Doreen disappeared. Liz told me that was the same answer Mark would give Sharon. He just couldn't or wouldn't remember. But in poring over Mark and Sharon's phone bill, I noticed something really weird. And it does look like Mark was out and about. In the 52 calls charged to the Whirlwind Hill House between June 15th and July 1st, 1988, 14 of them were made to a Wallingford number ending in 8033. Those digits meant nothing to investigator Richard Novia, who, ever incurious, jotted it at the bottom of the bill with a nonsensical note, telephone number equals Mrs. Mark Vincent. But the 8033 number, of course, didn't belong to Sharon, or even the other Mrs. Vincent, Mark's mother, Lori. It belonged to a woman I'll call Betty. Betty died in 2018 at the age of 97, which would have made her 67 in 1988. Her obituary tells us her love for the St. Louis Cardinals was rivaled only by cooking and baking for her two children, including her now 64-year-old son, whose name I'll keep quiet for now. And here's the really weird thing. Those 14 calls, each lasting only one or two minutes with only one exception, were not placed from the Whirlwind Hill house. Rather, each of the cardinal calls, which is what I'll be calling them in honor of Betty's favorite team, were made collect. For those younger listeners, a collect call is a simple reversal of charges and occurs when the caller wants to place a call at the callee's expense. But these calls had an extra wrinkle. They were consistently placed from one location, in reality multiple places around Connecticut, to a second location, Betty at 8033, and billed back to Mark and Sharon at 1316. I'll be putting a copy of the bill and a visual I have created of the cardinal calls on Patreon. But remember that pen and paper you got out to chart Sharon's family tree? Dig it back out again and call up a map of Connecticut on Google, because I need some help making sense of this. We'll have no help from Novia. The only call he looked into was the one from Sharon on June 15th for prayer. The first of the cardinal calls, the calls to the 8033 number, takes place the day after Doreen allegedly disappeared, June 16th at 6.09 p.m. It was the only call charged to the house that day, and it was placed from the home of Mark's mother, Lori Vincent. The phone was off the hook on the 17th and 18th, but a cardinal call was placed from Trumbull on June 19th at 3.29 p.m. Trumbull, home to the Simon Evans Center, is down in the little hook that makes up Connecticut's Fairfield County, heading towards New York State and directly north of Bridgeport. The next day, June 20th, a cardinal call from Branford, over in neighboring New Haven County, and about a half hour away from Bridgeport and Trumbull, at 8.31 that morning. June 21st, 10.45 a.m., a cardinal call from a Bridgeport number ending in 1299. Later that day, 
were back in New Haven County, this time with a cardinal call from Milford, 428 p.m. June 22nd, a cardinal call from a Bridgeport number ending in 6032 at 12.48 p.m. Continuing with my baseball analogy, and in the hope that you're still listening, I'm going to call the 6032 line the Chicago Cubs. Another call was placed from the Cubs line to the Cardinals at 8.033 at 12.46 the next day, June 23rd. June 24th, this Cardinal call comes from Enfield, 9.48 a.m. The Enfield Cardinal call is an outlier for a number of reasons. First, at eight minutes, it's by far the longest of the Cardinal calls. But you'll also see on your handy map that Enfield is at the opposite end of the state from Bridgeport and Milford and Trumbull, up at the edge of Massachusetts as opposed to New York, and still an hour from Wallingford. In all the work I've done on this case, I've never seen another Enfield connection. And then there's this. At 10.01 a.m., 13 minutes later that same day, there is another cardinal call, billed back to 1316, but not made from that location. This one comes from the Cubs, who, you might recall, are in Bridgeport. So riddle me this. There is no way that one person could have made it from Enfield to the Cubs in Bridgeport in 13 minutes to place those two back-to-back cardinal calls. Sharon was, we believe, at the Wallingford house with Sarah and Paul. So who else is doing the calling? And there's a third cardinal call on June 24th, coming at 12.21 p.m., like the first one that day, from the Cubs. June 27th saw two cardinal calls from two different Bridgeport numbers, not the Cubs, one at 11.08 a.m. and the other at 2.47 that afternoon. Finally, there would be two more cardinal calls from the Cubs on June 29th at 10.52 p.m. and July 1st at 10.25 a.m. There are no cardinal calls, no calls made to Betty's Wallingford House at that 8033 number, ever made directly from the Whirlwind Hill House, not one. If that blast from the collect call passed, from back in the days when phones were bound to walls by cords, wasn't weird enough, there is also this. The late 80s marked the dawn of three-way or conference calling, what kids back then used to call total phone. In those two weeks of records I have, from June 15th to July 1st, 1988, someone at the Whirlwind Hill House was using three-way calling quite a bit. Subtract, if you will, the 14 cardinal calls from the 52 billed to the house during that two-week period. Of the remaining 38 calls, seven of them were made to one number, with a second then conferenced in, meaning there were three parties on the phone. Of those seven calls, six of them were used to conference in the Cubs. And just like no one ever called the Cardinals directly from Mark and Sharon's, no one ever called the Cubs directly either. I'm looking into the Cubs and the Cardinals now, trying to parse out what Mark was talking about with them when he said he was out looking for Doreen. And according to my sources, the Wallingford PD is on the same path, looking into a list of people they think might have helped Mark. To them, I say, welcome aboard. I'm here if you want to talk. And Sharon was helping Mark, too. About a month after Doreen went missing, on July 13, 1988, Mark entered the Silver City gun shop in Meriden alone and browsed through the counters. Silver City clerk Edward Dewey, later testifying for the prosecution at Mark's gun trial, couldn't recall Mark speaking to anyone in the store, and he didn't buy anything. The next day, July 14th, 
Mark came back into the store, this time with Sharon in tow. There would be no browsing this day, Dewey recalled. Sharon walked directly to the counter and picked out a Rossi 38 and some ammunition, registering it in her name while Mark lingered in the background. On November 22, 1988, Dewey saw Sharon again when she returned to Silver City to sell the gun back, saying she didn't feel safe with Mark having it. When Mark discovered the gun was missing, Sharon would later tell the police, he became furious and demanded she get it back, which Dewey confirmed she did the following morning, November 23rd. Sharon would also tell the PD that she wasn't sure why Mark needed the gun, but that he had been upset about Doreen's disappearance, and it might have had something to do with that. But it also might have been because he was afraid to live in the middle of nowhere, she said, or he may have wanted it to deal with the woodchucks that kept getting into their house. Sharon said nothing about the infamous bomb Mark claimed had been set off in the Whirlwind Hill front yard. She admitted that no matter what, she had never wanted Mark to have the gun but she knew better than to question him. That has surprised me, though. Sharon probably did anything that he told her to do. And because that was her personality or because that was the religion or because that was him? The religion or a... thing. You're the woman is supposed to submit to the husband. I mean, at that point, it became part of her personality. Wow. Softly children, walk. Softly children, walk. Softly children, find your freedom, little children. 